0: All right, 1st Kings 19. Our favorite prophet is he is having a rough time. We left off at verse 9 last Sunday night. And where we get to in verse 9, it mentions at the end of verse 8 that he's at Mount Sinai, but Elijah's been wandering around in the desert for 40 days. It's only a seven or eight day trip to Mount Sinai from where he was. So he's been wandering around in the desert for 40 days because he told the Lord, I'm no better than my forefathers. He doesn't believe he's any better than his forefathers who died in the desert because they didn't trust God and they, they, you know, they messed up. He believes God is done with him, even though the Lord is supernaturally keeping him alive for 40 days in the desert. And so Elijah's wanderings eventually lead him to Mount Sinai where When he gets there and he goes in this cave, the Lord decides to speak to him, to his discouraged and quite grouchy servant. And so through Elijah's correction and God restoring him to ministry, we're going to learn how to know which direction God wants us to go. So chapter 19, we begin in verse 9. And he came thither, he came there unto Sinai. It's called Mount Oreb here. That's just another name for the same mountain. He came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he, Elijah, said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away." The semicolons there are important. (laughs) We'll get to that in a second. But Elijah, he finds this cave to kind of spend the night in, and when he gets there, the Lord speaks to him. Mount Sinai is significant. This is where Moses saw the burning bush where he received his call to lead Israel. This is where Moses led Israel after Pharaoh let them go from Egypt. This is where the the rock first produced the water when he struck the rock, and, and water came out to provide for the nation. And of course, this is where God's presence descended and gave Moses the law. But this isn't just any cave that Elijah goes into. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, he came thither unto the cave. Not just any cave, but the cave. We are going to find this evening, uh, depending on how far we get, but we will find quite a few parallels between Elijah's experience in this chapter and Moses' experience when God kid him in the cleft of the rock, when Moses said, God, show me your glory. We're going to see some parallels. But in, in those parallels, we're also going to see two men who are in two very different places in their attitude towards God's people when they're in this cave. Now, Elijah, like I said earlier, he decides to pass the night here, but the Lord asks him a question. So I don't know if he's like getting his sleeping bag ready or whatever. All of a sudden, the Lord says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that's crucial because this means that God asks him that means God didn't send him here, right? I mean, it's similar to the idea of where are you, Adam? It's so similar. Where are, like God, It's not like God didn't know why Adam was there, and it's certainly why God didn't know why Elijah's here. But in both cases, Adam and Elijah are not where God sent them. They're not where they're supposed to be. We established last week that prior to fleeing from Jezebel, every decision Elijah had made was because of God's instruction. God said, go do this. And some of those instructions were a little nutty. Go walk into Samaria. The bulwark of strength of King Ahab, go walk in there and tell him, there ain't going to be rain until I say so, and then walk out. That doesn't happen unless something supernatural is going on. And then he tells him, go up on the mountain and invite all the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Ashtoreth and all Israel and King Ahab. I mean, there's, you know, are thou he that troubles Israel is what Ahab asked to He's like, no, you're the one troubling Israel. By the way, you know, I mean, th- th- there's danger here in all these situations, but he's, he's where God sent him, so he's perfectly safe unless the Lord has decided to call him home. So, we established that every, up to this point. Prior to fleeing Jezebel, everything Elijah did, all God's plan. This trek, this journey, that's all Elijah's plan. That's not God's plan. He was out of God's will for his life right now. It is crucial to make decisions based on God's leading. Like, when we're, we're gonna make decisions in life, uh, whether they're basic or or major, we they need to be based on God's leading. Now, most of our decisions in life are not complex. For example, the Bible says, don't steal. So that means I don't decide to stop working at 4 p.m. but put 5 p.m. on my you know, clock out time, right? You know, like that's a no-brainer. Like I don't need to know God. Is it okay for me to leave it for and lie, you know, that I stayed till five? Like, we don't need to, like, do a whole lot of research to figure out what God's will for us is in that situation. So, most of our life really is there. Like, you know, you know, um, be angry and sin not. So, it's not okay to lose your temper with the kids, you know? And I can't do that right now. I want to do that, but I can't do that right now. You might be thinking, but what about decisions that can't be answered by obeying a command in Scripture? Well, when we have a situation that isn't specifically addressed in Scripture, we can often be guided by looking at Bible principles, we can seek the Lord in prayer, and we can seek godly advice. But ultimately, it comes down to the same idea. When I see a command in Scripture that's clear, and I go, okay, so I can't steal or lie, whatever it might be in this situation, that's not going to please the Lord, that's out of bounds, it's because we're trusting the Lord and that what He says is true. And so that works even in situations where we don't have like a specific Scripture that says, yes, take this, take this promotion, or yes, sell your home. We don't have that, but we do have the same truth, which is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust on the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. Take Him into account, and He will direct your paths. He'll straighten them out. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is not a platitude. You know, it's not just a, a pithy thing to say. Like, it's how we're supposed to live. In fact, we probably should not just say Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. We should probably say Proverbs 3, 7, and 8, too, because there's more to it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes... Fear the Lord, which means love what he loves, hate what he hates, and depart from evil. So, if you find you're in a place where you're tempted to do something he hates, or you, you know it's, it, God's not going to be pleased by this, then go in the opposite direction. And if you do, verse 8 says, it shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. So, there, there's more there, you know. <laughs> it's not just a platitude. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. There are so many times throughout the week that I find myself leaning on my own understanding that happened? What are we going to do? Let me think. Because <laughs> that's what the, how the brain operates, like, well, let's do this. You get that email or that voicemail or the call or whatever it might be, and you're like, what do I do? You're like, okay, how about we just stop for a second and say, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding, and Lord, I'm looking to you. So before we get into how God's going to confront Elijah's poor decision here, you know, how do you make decisions? Like, what, what's the normal... Like, if I were to say, you know, how do you characterize your your decision-making in life? Is it trusting in the Lord, or is it leaning on your own understanding? Are you living out generally, Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, or are you generally leaning on yourself? Now, one last question in this verse. Why does Elijah pick this cave? He's not uneducated as far as the Scriptures go. So why does he pick this cave? I mean, was he so desperate for some type of supernatural experience with God that he wanted to recreate like what Moses had? I mean, was he maybe looking for God to wipe Israel out and start over with him? Remember, that's how, before Moses got in the cave, it's because the whole conversation started. He's having this long conversation with God where God said, stand aside, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you. And then Moses is like, time out. (laughs) Lord, I don't think that's your heart. Like that doesn't sound like you at all. And then he begins to intercede. And we have like three chapters of Moses interceding for the people for God to spare them. And then, you know, God says, "Fine, I'll spare them, but I won't go with them." And Moses is just pleading with the Lord, "Lord, it doesn't sound like you." And, and and the most important thing is you go with us and you're our God. And and eventually, of course, that's what the Lord wants to do. And so, someone standing in the gap for the people. But it started with, "Get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you." Is that what he's thinking? Was he looking for something flashy and powerful to prove that God wasn't done with him? Well, these four responses that Elijah gives to God's question, they, they have a little bit of all those things in it, which shows us that we have a, a very confused prophet here. He starts off in verse 10 by saying, I've been very, King James says, jealous, but it probably is more, should be translated, zealous… I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Colon, which means he pauses. It signifies a pause where you're waiting for a response. So he's pausing to see what God's response is. Now, when he says he's very zealous, it means to, to have deep devotion or to expend a lot of energy for something. In other words, I, I put a lot of energy into serving you, Lord. I gave it my all. But of course, the unspoken part of that is, but my all wasn't good enough. Lord, I failed. And that's why I'm here. But you know what's interesting about the Lord, at least I've found, when I come with that kind of a half answer, the Lord never lets me get away with a half answer. Like He's going to make me save the other part. And so, and the reason for that is because there can be no growth without honesty. I am absolutely convinced. So, there are numerous individuals. I've, I've been a Christian for since 1988, so I mean, it's a long time. I've been a pastor for, this will be 27 years in this July. I've seen a lot of people come and go. I, I have met people who had tremendous anointings, giftings on their life. And, uh, you know, I watched some of them really face plant, and not just once. Elijah's a man who had an incredible anointing on his life, but if we refuse to be honest with the Lord, we're going to hit a wall, and that's kind of where Elijah's at right now. Without coming clean before the Lord, there, there can't really be growth, and so the Lord doesn't reply. He doesn't Give any answer when Elijah kind of, I, I've given it all, my Lord. I, I I've been I've worked very hard for you. I gave everything I had. Lord's like, yeah, there's something else in your heart there that you need to tell me about. So Elijah, instead of doing that, he adds to his logic of why he's here. He next he says after this pause when God doesn't reply. He says, for, so now it's his second excuse, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. Semicolon. pause. Is that good enough, God? They had done these things. In fact, Elijah had to repair one of those thrown down altars when he was on Mount Carmel. But I, I do think it's interesting that Elijah, in his explanation to God of why he's here, he goes back to the state of things in Israel before the events of Mount Carmel. He's almost acting like nothing happened on that mountaintop. Which means this still isn't a confession. Rather than be honest and tell the Lord he thinks he's a failure, he tells the Lord his entire ministry was a lost cause to begin with. This was how it was beforehand and nothing's changed. It's still this way now. The reason I'm here is because your people are a mess, God. There isn't anything else that can be done for them. Maybe you should just wipe them all out and start over with me like you said you'd do with Moses. And yet within that statement, there is still an unspoken truth. Not just your people are a mess, but I wasn't good enough to bring them back. I failed. I failed to bring your people back. I don't think it's a coincidence that God finally decides to speak to Elijah once he's in this cave. Because the reason Moses was in that cave was because he'd been interceding for God's people when they'd sinned with the golden calf. And it's almost as if the Lord's saying, Elijah, you're acting like Moses, but you've forgotten why Moses was here. You've forgotten how Moses got to this cave. I cannot claim to be zealous for God, but give up on his people. I can't. I can't claim God's people are a lost cause when God was working in some people's lives. The truth is, there were people on the mountain who did return to the Lord, and no one tore down the altar that Elijah rebuilt up there. So the status that he's declaring in Israel is a status that doesn't exist anymore. Are things great? We don't know, because he left. But the truth is, something happened on Mount Carmel, and God did use him. And so this is not an accurate statement. So again, while Elijah waits for the reply, the Lord's not going to let him off the hook. This answer isn't good enough, Elijah, and you know it. Come on, tell me the truth. Well, he makes one little whiny plea before he gets to the truth. He says, and I, even I, only am left... This confuses me more than anything, because I'm like, Elijah, you know you're not the only one left. There's a guy named Obadiah that you met already who works for Ahab, who loves, loves the Lord. And he told you, if you didn't know beforehand, that he's hiding a hundred prophets. So, so what, do you, what do you mean you're the only one left? I mean, it is possible that maybe what Elijah's saying is, I'm the only one willing to stand up publicly for you. That's possible. But even if that's what he means, that's still not the whole truth. And so God still remains silent. Well, his last answer finally is the truth. Why are you here? And they seek my life to take it away. Aha! Now we've reached the truth. They were going to kill me, Lord. Everything failed. I was afraid, and so I ran. Now, again, before we get to God's answer, we do need to examine Elijah's words. Because who's this they that want to kill him? There's only one person who threatened him. Who's this they? Fear is the opposite of faith. But fear and faith also have some very interesting similarities. Faith is trusting that something or someone is reliable for your good. I can count on that. Fear is also trusting that something or someone is reliable, just for your bad. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the Scripture says, the substance of things unseen. But fear is too. (laughs) Like, fear doesn't have to be something you can put your hand on and say, well, this is reality. It is also the evidence of things hoped for, or dreaded, I should say, the substance of things that are not actually real yet. It's the same thing, but just in a bad way. Fear takes awful things that haven't happened yet and makes them a done deal in our mind. And then fear goes a step farther. It takes the facts behind the awful possible thing, and then it blows them out of proportion. Fear feeds on itself I had one of my kids, I won't say which one, but they didn't have like the monsters under the bed fear, but they had the fear of like monsters where your feet couldn't touch in the back seat of the car. <laughs> so they would sit in the back seat and because their feet didn't hit the ground, they would freak out. They would just hysterically cry. And little, little guy. And I would say to them, I say, listen, I was like, it is okay to feel afraid. That's a normal human thing. I said, but it is not okay to just surrender to that fear. Because what you have is you have an uncertainty. I don't know what's down there because I can't touch it. My feet are just dangling from this car seat. That's, I get it. I totally get it. I, I, I sympathize with your fear. I, I'm, right, I'm here for you, bud. But you're blowing this out of proportion to something that's completely irrational, which is a real fact is I can't touch the ground. I don't know what's down there. You're right. You don't. But you're blowing it out of proportion. It's like some googly-eyed monster or whatever is going to eat your feet. That's not okay because now you're making decisions and operating in life on the basis of something that can't be true. Fear feeds on itself and then expands to engulf more. It's why the first words the Lord or His prophets so often speak are, fear not because fear will dominate your will if you let it control your thought process. That's what happened to Elijah. The message from Jezebel came, and God didn't roast the messenger on the spot, or God didn't give Elijah some other sign that Jezebel had no power over him. God had told Elijah, Elijah, go talk to Ahab, and then come out, and then go to the place I send you. I'm going to take care of all your needs in a famine. Elijah's like, all right, all right, I can do that. The Lord's like, Elijah, the water's running out here. You need to go up to this widow in Zarephath, and, you know, I'm going to take care of you through her. All right, got the instructions. All right, great. Go up on Mount Carmel. Go, go back into Israel. Confront King Ahab. Bring all the prophets. All right, I got it. I mean, every step of the way, he's got these clear instructions, and then all of a sudden now he gets the voicemail from the, you know, the little text message from Jezebel, and he's like, now What? Like, where's, where's the fireworks? Where's the display? Like, where's the, where's the word? Where's, where's what, do, what do I do? And instead of, like, getting away with the Lord and seeking Him, he just, he bolts. His fear just grabs hold of him, and he, he, he doesn't see anything immediately from God, and so he just blows everything out of proportion, and, he, and he, he flees for his life. That he comes to a place that he actually tells the maker of heaven and earth, they seek my life. Elijah, you didn't stick around long enough to know if anybody else seeks your life. But that's what fear does. We like to make fun of Elijah for, you know, standing up to 450 prophets a ball, but running away from one woman. But that's not why Elijah ran. Elijah ran because he thought his entire country was against him. He ran because he believed if he stuck around, his death was inevitable. And so even though the full brunt of that lie that he had listened to, the fear that had overwhelmed him, even though the full brunt of that wore off by the time he got to Beersheba and all the shame hit him for what he'd done, for abandoning God's people, abandoning his mission even though he had realized what he had done and wanted God to kill him for it, that fear had already done its work on Elijah's memory of the event. Beware of fear. It's normal to feel afraid, but like I would tell my kids, you can't stay afraid because that leads to leaning on your own understanding, which is what the Lord's about to reveal to Elijah. And so in verse 11, the Lord says to him, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. Come out of that cave, Elijah. Last time, God put Moses in the cave. Why do I got to come out of the cave? Oh, you're going to come out of the cave, and you're going to stand before the Lord, he says. Literally, in the Hebrew, it reads, you're going to face the direction of my face. Again, I don't think Elijah's not educated in Scripture. He has to remember God's words to Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory, and the first thing God says is, no man can see my face and live. And what he tells Elijah right now is, come out of the cave, and you're going to look right at my face. I mean, I've had my kids at that time where I'm like, go to your room, I'm going to talk to your mom. And then, you know, you you walk in, you're like, come to my bedroom, and you know, they they got that look like, oh no, like it's going to happen. It's over. And they make the long walk, come out of the cave. He has to be thinking that his death is imminent, right? Here it comes. I'm going to get what I deserve for my failure. And yet, God doesn't kill Elijah. Keep reading, it says, And behold, the Lord passed by. That's the same exact word that God used when he passed by Moses. Same exact word. And the Lord passed by and declared the name of the Lord. Same thing here. Except, whereas God declared his name to Moses, Elijah gets a fireworks show. It says here that the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Now, God's presence came, and the mountain is falling apart. This massive whirlwind comes, and that has to be terrifying. I mean, all these rocks are flying around Elijah. But it tells us the Lord was not in the wind, which is why Elijah is still alive. For all the rocks flying around Elijah, he spared because God's glory wasn't in the windstorm that could tear apart the fabric of our planet. Elijah didn't see the face of God by seeing the windstorm. It says next, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. I'm not an earthquake expert, but I can't imagine a good place to be during an earthquake is on the side of a mountain. Just get just a guess. And yet, Elijah is spared again because seeing the earthquake wasn't the same as seeing God's face. There was no intimacy, no closeness with God there like, you know, Moses was going to experience. So, next it says in verse 12, after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. The word fire here, it's the same word for what happened on Mount Carmel. It means a gout of flame. It could be a lightning bolt, but whatever. It's likely a repeat. What, here he's on another mountain. He saw fire consume the sacrifice. and all of a sudden fire hits the mountain again. But Elijah realizes the Lord's not in the fire. He's spared because seeing that fire wasn't the same as seeing God's face. God is showing his frightened, grumpy, frustrated prophet that Elijah was looking for something that was less than what he needed. I can do all these things, Elijah, but I'm not in any of those things. Like, could God have roasted the messenger that brought the? You know, if you're not like one of my prophets tomorrow, you know, so help me the gods. He could have roasted the messenger. He could have. Could have he turned Jezebel into a crispy critter? Of course. But clearly, that's not what God knew would bring the people closer to Him. The fire got the people's attention on Mount Carmel, but it was going to take something greater to keep them close to God. It's the same something that finally brought Elijah close to God's glory. For it says, after the fire, there was a still, small voice. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says a calm voice small, a calm voice, small, tiny. The word still there, it means a calm, hushed voice, a gentle whisper. What Elijah needed most when that messenger from Jezebel came wasn't another miracle to vanquish his foes. He needed to hear God's next instructions And God's next instructions weren't going to be prophesy Jezebel's death or call down fire on the unbelievers. God's next instructions were going to be a quiet work in the nation building on the victory that happened on Mount Carmel. Now, that quiet voice, it might have told Elijah, hey, let's get out of Jezreel, get somewhere safe. But I don't think that would have been Beersheba. (laughs) or the desert. That voice might have told him to boldly and openly teach the people God's Word while God protected him and slowly won the nation's hearts back. We'll never know what those next instructions would have been because he didn't take the time to just wait and listen. I have frequently had situations in my life as a Christian where other people have come to me and said, you need to do something. And, and I have just bluntly and firmly said we're not moving until God tells us where to go. But the deadline is today. God doesn't operate by those deadlines. And so I don't operate by those deadlines. It is very freeing to not let the pressures of my own understanding guide my decisions. It is so stressful to lean on your own understanding. <laughs> See, what are you going to do? Not my problem. <laughs> Lord, tomorrow is the deadline. They're going to shut the water off. I've been there. I've had my water shut off, right? I've had my electricity shut off over the years. Not recently, but I have had it happen. I've experienced those things. You go, Lord, what are you doing? Lord says, just keep resting in me. Well, keep working hard. Keep trusting me. I'm going to take care of your needs. I've had times when there was no food for my family in any, any, any cupboard anywhere, you know, any cabinet anywhere. What are we going to do, Lord? We got no money, no food. And all of a sudden, out of the blue… We didn't tell anybody, and somebody shows up at the house with groceries. We had a neighbor, they worked at at a grocery store, and we were going through a particularly challenging time, no food in the house, and we walked outside and there was this pallet of food. And we're like, where did this come from? It's like, did Ravens drop this off? We found out later on that our neighbor just had all this extra stuff and they're like, yeah, it's going to go bad in a day or two so they pulled off the shelf and couldn't sell anymore but it's perfectly fine. The point that God is making to Elijah here is that the work he was going to do from this point on was going to be a quiet work. His work was to draw the people into a personal encounter with him. Just like Elijah was having now. It wasn't to have a fireworks show every week. You know, I... I who doesn't want to see a miracle? Right? Like, like, it's always cool when somebody calls up and they're like, I went forward for prayer on Sunday morning and the, the prayer team, they, they anointed me with oil and, and I'm healed. And you're like that's awesome. (laughs) Like, that's incredible. All right, let's do it again, Lord. Who doesn't want to see, like, God visibly move where everybody knows? But That's not the normal way God works all the time. A lot of time, God's doing all these little miracles that only I can see. And I would say, nine out of ten times, He's doing the miracles in my heart, changing me. The miracles have very little to do with the external stuff going on around me. Those are all the things that God's allowed in my life to shape me to do the miracle in my heart. Elijah might be trying to be like Moses here, but he had lost Moses' heart for God's people. And what's crazy about this is that Moses, at this point, when, when he's at this point in the cave, like, he's got a lot of reasons to lose hope. <laughs> like, he has a lot of reasons for when God says, step aside, let me wipe mountain out, and go, go for it, Lord. I'm, I'm done too. I'm done too. He's got way more reasons than Elijah to feel that way. But he didn't. Moses stood in the gap for God's people, which is what Elijah's ministry was going to look like from now on. It's not going to be all the, you know, fire coming down from heaven and, you know, triumph over the prophets of Baal. No. You're going to bring people into a personal encounter with me. I don't know everything that God said. We get a little glimpse of what he says in a second, but I don't know everything that God said to Elijah in that still small voice before Elijah comes back to the entrance of the cave. But the point that, that God is going to make to Elijah is, Elijah, your ministry is not a failure. In fact, it was a success. It was a success. Everything was going just as I'd planned for it to go, Elijah. Like, you did everything I told you to do. That's success. Everything was going just like the Lord planned until Elijah stopped following the Lord's instructions and ran away. Which means that Elijah needs to get back to following God's instructions. He needs to get the next set of instructions from God. Because the only way his ministry will be a failure is if he doesn't do that right now, if he just keeps wandering around. Now, because Elijah knew he was going to come to fa- come face to face with the Lord through his word, and there's I don't have time to go into it tonight, but there's a couple ways that the Hebrew phrases the Lord's word here, and it's, t- it's talking about Jesus. So, so he's gonna come face to face with the Lord's word. He's gonna come face to face with the Lord in his glory. And so, because he knows that's what's gonna happen next, I find it interesting that he acts differently now. Look at verse 13, and it was so, when he hears the still small voice, again, I don't know everything God said, but when he hears it, now his whole attitude's a little different. He says, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out and he stood in at the entering of the cave. Now, remember earlier I mentioned, what did God say? No man could see my face and live, right? And Elijah's, I'm going to die, I'm going to go out. You know, and he goes out, and there's fire, and there's lightning maybe, and wind, and uh, earthquake, and he's alive. But then he hears the still small voice, and whoosh, he's absolutely humbled. This is this is the real deal now. Like the Lord wasn't in that. I thought he was in that before. I thought that's what Mount Carmel was all about. But now I see what it is. Is that he's it's it's the time when I would spend with him on my face, and he would instruct me. And that's where we're going again. And I'm not ready to die. <laughs> <laughs> I whined a lot about wanting to die, but truth is, I don't want to get crispy crittered. Because he knows when the Lord brings his word, he's going to come face to face with God. And so he wraps, literally the word wrap there, it means to cover, to wrap up his face. Elijah is there, he's before the Lord and he's got, his face is all wrapped up. He's not seeing God's face. He's got his his mantle, his cloak. He takes his cloak off and he wraps it around. Again, I find it interesting that the man who asked God to kill him now does everything to make sure he doesn't die. He wants to hear God's instructions, but he he doesn't want to see God's face like this. He's not able to see God's face like this. And so it tells us that he went out. Literally, that means he... Descended. So, he, so he, he, he's outside on the mountain, and so he descends to the back to the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice on him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> I absolutely love that God asked him the same question. Like, I read this, I, every time I read this part of scripture, I just laugh out loud. I laugh out loud because this is so much like my relationship with the Lord. It is so true to life. God will convict me about something. I storm around for a bit or pout or get into a funk. But then I come back to the Lord about it, and the Lord doesn't budge an inch. All right, Lord, I'll I'll come read my Bible again. I say, that's great, but let's talk about this. Well, I kind of just wanted to, like, read Psalm 23. Like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Yeah, but we need to finish that conversation about loving your wife. Yeah, well, well you know, that's, that's great too, but Psalm 23 would be nice. <laughs> Let me give you a, a vital life lesson. God never moves when you're arguing with Him about something because He's never the one in the wrong. He's never the one in the wrong, so he never moves. Now, God is moved to show us compassion, and he meets us where we're at, just like he's doing with Elijah here. But his stand on what's right and what he wants us to do never changes. Like his standard, it never budges. None of that moves. You can't wear him down. Or convince him to change his mind. He knows what's best, and he loves us too much to budge. And so he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Let's start over. Then Elijah, this this again, I can't read this without laughing. He's got the cloak on. He's like, I, I'm, I'm very jealous for you, God. You know, m- through, muffled through his cloak, you know. I'm very, very, very jealous for you, God. You know, they killed everybody, turned down your heart, and I'm only la-. I mean, I just, I can't not read it without laughing. And the fact that he says the same exact words, it shows us that He's thought about the aspects of this answer a lot the last 40 days. I mean, it's almost like a rote answer. What am I going to do if God comes up? Well, tell him this. And he's been thinking about it and coming up with this answer so much so that it's entrenched in his mind as fact. Can't do this, God. I told you weeks ago I'm not better than my forefathers. The fact that I'm here is proof of that. I'm a failure. Remember back in verse 7 when the angel, it says the angel Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. The angel wasn't talking about the trip to Mount Sinai. The angel was talking about God's plan for the rest of Elijah's life. Elijah, you need to eat. You're not where you're supposed to be, man. I've I've seen this story a thousand times. Man walks away from the Lord and then God goes, chases him down. God's not done with you, son. Eat up. Because the conversation you're about to have is not going to leave you where you are. You said you're not good enough, Elijah. There's some truth to that. You can't finish your journey leaning on your own understanding. That's the problem. Journey's too much for you. If this is the the path you're going to take, you're right. You're, You're not going to make it. Where you are now is proof that your plan does not work. You're going to have to learn to lean on the Lord again if you're going to make it to the finish line, Elijah. And so, because the Lord isn't done with Elijah and because God can still use him despite his failures, the Lord ignores all the excuses and He gives Elijah His next instructions. The Lord said unto him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be prophet in your place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. God's next instructions are extremely clear. Go. You're not staying here. And then he says, return. Return on your way. Literally says, you need to go back to the direction of, where, of your journey. This is not the direction of your journey, Elijah. You're not where you're supposed to be. Get back on the path that God has you on. Go back on the journey I sent you on. You need to do that. That's the journey that the angel had in mind in verse 7, God's plan for Elijah. You've been off-roading long enough, Elijah. It's time to get back to following the Lord. God's path for you is not wandering in the desert. It's back up north with your people. Go up to the wilderness of Damascus. It means a desert region near Damascus. Damascus is a, one of the most ancient cities in the world, but it's in the middle of a desert, but it's built on an oasis. That's why it's so big. Go back up there. Syria is north of the, the nation of Israel. And I want you to anoint this guy, Haziel, to be the next king over Syria. Haziel is currently an official in Syria, not really anybody important. In fact, an Assyrian tablet described him as the son of a nobody. But this nobody will eventually become a somebody, and it's Elijah's job to let him know. Secondly, you're going to go up and anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. Jehu, again, is not really a bigwig, he's just a military commander uh, in Ahab's army. And then Elisha. You're going to anoint him, this son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah. It's a city near uh, Beshan in the end of the banana that is the Jezreel Valley. He says, go anoint him to be prophet in your place. He's going to be your successor. Again, Elisha is no one special. He's not from the school of prophets. He's not a son of a prophet. Uh, He's the son of a wealthy landowner. But all of these seemingly unimportant people will become very important in the future, and God's going to deal with those that need to be dealt with through these guys, not Elijah. And He'll do it in His perfect timing, not when Elijah thinks God needs to deal with those people. Now, I do think it's interesting that there is no record in Scripture of Elijah anointing Haziel or Jehu. In fact, it's Elisha who tells—he does doesn't anoint Haziel, but he tells Haziel, you're is that right? Yeah, Hezio. that he'll be the next king of Assyria, of Syria, not Assyria, he'll be the next king of Syria. And then it's just some unnamed uh, student from the school of prophets that Elijah's in charge of who ends up anointing Jehu. So, Elijah's long gone before both of those events occur. Now, that leaves us with only two possibilities. Either Elijah didn't obey the Lord, or God was, was letting Elijah know, Elijah, you're my people are not a lost cause. Like, you think it's over and it's a lost cause, but I have plans that extend way past your ministry. I think that's what God's saying. I don't know for sure, but I lean that way. These individuals will not become major players in God's plan for many more years. In fact, we won't meet any of them aside from Elisha until we get halfway through Second Kings which means Israel is not a lost cause like Elijah thinks. And that's an important lesson for us because it means no matter how bad things look in the culture around us, God still wants to rescue souls and He has a plan to rescue souls. Jesus still died for everyone and God is still working. We must never develop an Elijah at Mount Sinai mentality that we're the only ones left. Never. God explains that in the last thing He says to him in verse 18. He says, this is your next instructions. Oh, and by the way, (laughs) the word yet means, uh, so then, which means let's talk about what you said earlier. You know, God seems to ignore Elijah's excuse for being here and just tells him what to do, stop, go back. God doesn't ignore it. He just waits until the end to correct Elijah because what Elijah needs to know is, I'm not done with you first. That's what he needs to know first. You're not a failure. I'm not done with you. Get back to work. But let's talk about that thing you said. (laughs) He goes, I have left me, which I have still remaining loyal to me, seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him I have, you say you're the only one left, but I got 7,000 people who didn't run like you did. So, chill out. I've got lots of people who have not bowed in worship before an idol or kissed the little wood or metal idols people kept in their homes. These. Kissing and bowing They're ancient gestures of devotion. Uh, it was a pagan way of showing worship or love for a deity. I find it common for I see people kissing a crucifix or a, a cross today, and I realize that people aren't trying to recreate a pagan practice when they do that, but that does have its roots in idolatry, not our faith. Like that's not something you see the people of God doing in the scripture. And so based on the second commandment, no matter how pure the motive might be, that's not something we should do. Now, God's point is, Elijah, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm sure that Jezebel tried to crack down once Elijah ran off, but God makes it clear to his prophet that many refused to give in and many refuse to go back on their new commitment on Mount Carmel. Anytime I start to think that I'm the only one who loves God, I'm going to come to some incorrect conclusions. God always has a remnant. That's what His Word says, always. And there is almost always someone out there who loves Him more than I do. Humility is even more important when the culture turns away from God. God. Because when believers become proud and kind of secrete themselves away because we're just going to bunker down until Jesus comes back, when believers do that, it keeps the culture moving in the wrong direction. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm out of time, so you can read it on your own, but in verses 14 through 19, it talks about how judgment starts here in the house of God, not out there. You know, Elijah's like, God, why didn't you get him? And the Lord's like, I eh, kind of need to deal with you first. Judgment starts here. Like, God's discipline and ministry to get us right starts here, not out there. I'm not saved because I'm better than the unbelievers around me. I'm saved by the grace of God because in my own way, I'm just as bad as all the unbelievers around me. Disdaining the culture is never the answer, Looking at how I can follow Jesus more faithfully is the answer. So let's all stand. We didn't get through the chapter. I'm not going to skip those last three verses because I think when you read them, you're going to see Elijah's still grumpy, but he does get back on God's path for his life. And, you know, so I would say to you tonight maybe if you're, you've been struggling with being grumpy or discouraged or feeling like a failure or just feeling like it's hopeless. I can, like, like a, none of my coworkers care about anything about the gospel. They don't want to hear it. Okay. It's all right. God's still working. He puts you there. That's evidence he's still working. He puts you there. That's evidence that he still wants to reach him. And I have found it to be crazy how, more often than not, when I lead someone to Christ, it doesn't happen because I've like it's this slow buildup where I'm like, oh yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're gonna win this guy. Often it just kind of comes out of the blue where they're like, my grandma just died and I don't know what to do. And you've been there that whole time putting up with the nonsense and just staying steadfast, loving people, preaching the truth, you know, being, more, being Jesus to them. And in that moment when God gets them, you're still there. So don't go run to Mount Sinai. Stay where God puts you. Be obedient. Love people. Whether you see results or not, success is not based on whether you see the miraculous things going on around you. Success is about following God's instructions. Amen. So, Lord, we need direction for our life and, and we want to follow your instructions. We realize that, Lord, most of your instructions are right here in your word. Like, like We've got plenty on our plate that we need to work on as regards that. But Lord, even in the areas where your word doesn't specifically address what we need to do next, Lord, we want to be those who do not lean on our understanding. We want to be those who trust in you with all of our heart. So Lord, you know everybody here tonight. You know their work situation, their family situation, their marriage situation, their friendship situation. Lord, you know what's going on. You know where they need direction. And so I pray that Lord, either you lead them to the scriptures that will have the principles or the commands to let them know what they need to do, or, Lord, as they are leaning on you and not themselves, as they're waiting on you, Lord, with that still, small voice, that hushed whisper of just sitting at your feet, reading the word day by day, trusting that you, if they ask, they'll receive, if they seek, they'll find, if they knock, the door will be opened, Lord, that you're gonna guide them. Lord, Lord, Give them that confidence tonight and as they commit it to you, Lord, fill them with your spirit so they can live that commitment out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.